I have the privilege of announcements this morning, so we have a couple of quick ones. Uh, we wanted to ask our visitors if you would fill out the visitor uh, comment card in the back of your seat, if you would, and you can drop those off uh, in the offering boxes. Um, or you can sign in. We have a guest logbook in the back, in, or outside of the sanctuary. Um, there is a community worship service tonight at Cornerstone. That's at the new place, right, Shane? The new building over there. Um, and then as a reminder, this week with Thanksgiving, we will not have our Wednesday activities. Um, please don't show up. We won't be here. <laughs> if everybody could stand with me for the memory verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4, 6. Oh, church, can we just thank, uh, it's nice to have a new worship leader, new voice in there. Ryan, thank you. Uh, good job for leading us in song, worship through song. Uh, if you're new here, my name's Shane, Pastor Shane, and I just it is a privilege to serve the Lord and the saints here at First Baptist in Riverton, and we have a very intriguing passage of Scripture today to go through. It's actually a unique one. It's a difficult one uh, to go through. Uh, before we get there, I just wanted to invite you, if you're hoping for a Thanksgiving Day sermon, it's not going to be this morning. But I want to invite you to join us at the community service tonight. Uh, I get the privilege of joining some of our uh, local fellow believers and fellow pastors in the city, and we're just going to have an amazing time of worship, celebrating what God's doing in our city together. And I get to play worship. I get to play some guitar with Ian McFarland, which he's an amazing drummer. I'm really looking forward to that. So I'm excited. Um, so come to the community service, and again, I just want, if you're a visitor, could you make sure to let us know that you're here? We've got a clipboard in the back, or we got little papers that you can put in the offering plate at the end of the service, just to let us know that you're here. I want to pray for you. I want to know how you're doing, and I want to be able to visit you if uh, you're open to that. And then as well, we are continuing to look forward into the and pray let me, let me say, we're looking forward and praying about this next year, 2024. What is this going to look like for us as First Baptist Church? Um, we're marching forward in what we call our courageous and bold steps towards what God has for us in the next year. And so we want to want you to join us in praying for that process, but also discussions, talking about where do you see God moving in and through us as a people? Can we do that, church? Is God moving in and through us as a people? By God's grace, yes, amen, right, okay. So um, that brings us to our current series, A Good King Goes to, to War. And we are currently um, going through the last part of Mark in our three, three, it's been three amazing series. This is the final part. This is a week of Jesus' life. Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and he's going to war. And we're going to see that his tone becomes that of uh, not just intense teaching, but now an intense offense towards the enemy, towards what we're going to see today is religious hypocrites, and we're going to pray through and see Jesus in this final week as he goes to the cross for our sins in the book of Mark. If you got a Bible, turn to the Mark chapter 11, turn to the book of Mark chapter 11. Today we're going to be in verses 12 through 21, and as you're turning there, I've got a confession to make. Church, I'm a hypocrite. 
And I got good news. Uh, I'm a recovering hypocrite, and you and I can be too. We can do this together. We can recover in our hypocrisy. It's really important. And as, as I was thinking about and prepping this sermon, I realized there was a time when Becky and I were first married. Becky's my wife. And I remember we had uh, her parents had given us all of these fake shrubberies and trees that she would decorate our house with. And I remember as a young and, and kind of dumb new husband, um, I thought it would be really fun to give her a hard time for those fake plants. And so every once in a while, I'd look at, and there was one that she positioned in the corner. And I'll never forget, uh, over and over, I'd tell her, there's a lie in the corner, Becky. And she'd just roll her eyes at me because, you know, she's an incredibly graceful woman. And, and uh, so for years, I, I've given her a hard time about fake plants, plants that are plastic and that kind of thing. Anybody have those? They're awesome. You don't have to water them, right? Um, so I was realizing as we were preparing for Christmas this year how much of a hypocrite I was because as I was thinking about Christmas and setting up our tree, I realized that I was the one who bought our fake Christmas tree that has all the lights already connected on each of the branches because I'm a proponent of protecting my laziness. And so I, I realized that as I was writing the sermon, I went and confessed that to my wife. I said, honey, I got to tell you, I'm a hypocrite. I've been giving you a hard time for years about your fake plants, and I'm a big proponent of fake Christmas trees. And she, of course, forgave me, thank goodness. But what we're going to see here in this passage, that's kind of a light story or lead into this idea that Jesus is going to address hypocrisy in religious hearts. As he goes to war, as he marches into Jerusalem, the first thing he wants to address and rather intensely so. We know he had the kingly procession. He came into Jerusalem to great fanfare, didn't he? He rode on a colt on a donkey. Um, and so we're going to see probably one of the most bizarre passages in Scripture, at least definitely in the ministry of Jesus. It's, it's been argued over for many, many years. It's a hard passage of Scripture. Let's go ahead and just jump in and read it. Mark eleven twelve 12 says, on the following day, so on the following day, if you mark in your Bibles, a good friend of mine used to call this Testy Tuesday. Testy Tuesday. This is when Jesus is going to be a little testy, but at the same time, the Pharisees at the time are going to be testing him in the next several conversations. So it's a Tuesday of the week that Jesus would be crucified. And when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. It was not the season for figs. Um, how many of you are a huge proponent of figs? They're like your favorite fruit. You eat them all the time. I think the only way I was familiar with figs is I like Fig Newtons. Anybody have any, uh, a passion where you like you open that packet of Fig Newtons and they disappear because you don't know they're so delicious you've tasted and you've eaten the whole bag? Maybe that's just a Shane problem. But when I think of figs, I think of Fig Newtons, and, and it was a delicious treat at the time. And this is a peculiar passage. Jesus, this is the only time that Jesus does a miracle that ends in some type of destruction, it's the only time this happens in the ministry of Jesus, when a miracle or something like this happens and, and ends in destruction. And Jesus curses this fig tree, and we're going to see at the end of this passage uh, that it withers and it dies. 
So there's some takeaways, and then there's an occurrence or a story that emphasizes his imagery. But the thing about the Bible and the thing about how God has communicated historically to us is a lot of times he does through teachable moments, teachable situations. And this is a teachable situation that God uses. Why this fig tree? You see, King Jesus, when he marches to war, cuts through false pretense. He calls out hypocrites among his people. As I was researching and studying this this passage, R.C. Sproul um, has a great quotable uh, little statement that hypocrites are sinners, but sinners don't have to be hypocrites. I want you to think about that for a second. Hypocrites are sinners, but sinners don't have to be hypocrites. You know what I'm saying here? See, all hypocrites, we know all of us, are sinners. Yes, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've gone over that. Jesus has displayed that in the book of Mark resoundingly that we are sinners, but we are also really good at making ourselves believe that we're better than we are, aren't we? We tend to think of ourselves as we are good people. We've talked about that, and we lie to ourselves. Well, hypocrites are sinners. Everybody who thinks they're better than they are are definitely sinners, but sinners don't have to be hypocrites. And here's the beautiful thing about being a Christian. When you're a Christian, you don't have to be a hypocrite because you're honest with who you are, yes? And that's where we say, anybody say, I'm not perfect. I'm not good. In fact, there's nothing good in me, right? And so we can be honest, and being honest or being humble, which is the opposite of being a hypocrite, being humble uh, is to be honest with ourselves in our need and in our sin, And the thing about Jesus, when he approaches this fig, Jesus was hungry. He was wanting something of substance, but he would be left disappointed by the fig. This, by the way, is a picture of a a fig tree. The fig represents God's people, Israel. They were excited several times in the Old Testament. The, The nation of Israel was referred to as a fig tree. It represented Israel, and they were excited about the Messiah, As you know from the previous passage, they were pretty stoked about the king, about the Messiah entering Jerusalem, yes? They were very excited on the front as long as that Messiah served their wants, their desires, and their idols. This, in the end, is a fruitless pursuit. If you come to Jesus trying to get your wants and your desires met and you end up using Jesus for those pursuits, you're going to leave in a fruitless pursuit. And so what we see from, what can we learn from the fig tree? Number one, we can learn that it was false advertising. It was false advertising. Jesus was hungry. He looks at the fig from far off, and from far off, did it look good? Yeah, it did. It got me thinking a lot today of how often we like to cater how people see us. There's a whole generation, and let's be honest, all of us do this on social media, don't we? Have you ever noticed that nobody, uh, not too often on social media do people post uh, not very good-looking pictures of themselves? They only picture the best of the best of the best pictures, right? Because they threw out all of the bad ones. Um, That's a lot of catering, right? It's a lot of false advertising. But the weird thing is what they're saying about the younger generations is they're growing up believing that everybody's best pictures is how everybody is supposed to live. And so then that becomes the expectation, 
right? That everybody is supposed to have this good life and supposed to look good all the time and their hair is supposed to be in place and their kids are supposed to be behaved. And then they look at their own life and they go, oh my goodness, this is a mess. Anybody been there? You look like, man, you're looking at people's Facebook, you're looking at their Instagram, and you're thinking, wow, why can't life be like that for me? Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that's false advertising. That's false advertising. And I want to encourage you to stop doing it. I want to encourage you to stop doing it on social media, but also stop trying to be better or project yourself as better than you ought. When you ask people, how are you doing, what do they typically say? There's two words I get most of all, good and fine. And I go, oh, my goodness. Are you sure? You ever said that to somebody who said they were good? They, they take a second look, right? So false advertising, this idea of that we are catering ourselves, we're trying to get this picture of ourselves that's just not true. It reminds me of the saying, have you ever heard of the, the, the saying, can't read a book by its cover? That there's more depth to people than you would first assume? There's more going on in people's lives than you would first assume by looking at them. And for us, as we continue in the narrative, we're going to read about the, the court or the temple. And at the time in the temple, it was going to look like there were a lot of people there, and there's a lot of boom, and there's a lot of bustle. But Jesus is going to point out that it was not for the right reasons. And this is where Jesus gets really testy, when people are not engaging in worship with the right heart, but instead are there to get what they want to benefit themselves. I want you to think about as we prepare, well, actually, let me read um, here a little further in, in, the, in the narrative, starting in verse 14. And he said to it, no one may ever eat of you again. And his disciples heard it. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And so what we see is a marketplace in the temple had, been, had become this like huge marketplace. I think this is lost on us today. What's the biggest mall you've ever been to? You ever been to a shopping mall, an outlet mall? Yeah, what's it's the Mall of America, I think I heard, yeah. Um, I want you to think about what this and what, what researchers are saying is this was probably about a 35-acre area called the Gentile Court before the temple. 35 acres of merchandise and marketing and sell of animals for sacrifice. They say that during the Passover season, at that time, it would have been over 255,000 sheep sold for Passover for sacrifice. That's 255,000 sheep. So you have animals everywhere. You have people bartering. You have money changers. This place looks pretty lively. There's a lot going on. But we know that Jesus preceded this just like the fig. It had leaves, but it had no fruit. So Jesus is looking at the temple, and he's saying, there's a lot of hustle, and there's a lot of bustle, and there's a lot of things happening, and there's a lot of people here, but there's no fruit. 
but there's no fruit, just like the fig tree. It makes me think of Luke 6, 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the, and the evil person, out of the, his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, that's an interesting passage because I think it's interesting. How many of you instantly, when you read Luke 6, you think, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good? How many of you are like, I think I can try to do that. If I just read enough scripture, good will come out of me. Anybody instantly kind of relate to that passage more than the evil person? Like, surely I'm not the evil person in this example, Jesus. But if you remember back to none are good, and that was a a very profound teaching of Jesus, then that only leaves us in this passage, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Guys, that's us. Because we are sinful, evil comes out of us. You ever had something come out of you that you were like, whoa, I didn't know that was in there? Maybe it's words. Maybe it's actions. Maybe it's how you treated somebody. And you're like, wow. Anybody lose themselves in anger? See, we are the evil person in this scenario. And so when we do church, our, our, our tendency is to swing towards the evil coming out of us. And that's been happening as he looks at the temple. This has been happening for years and years and years. This is not a new problem. Sin is not a new problem for the church, yes? This is something we've been dealing with in our own hearts for many, many years. The fruit in scriptures. Let's talk about what are the fruit in scriptures. We have to go to a passage in Galatians. Galatians 5, 22 through 24 tells us what is the fruit? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Maybe some of you have this memorized. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so when we do church, when we come together to worship, what should reign in us is the fruits of the Spirit, yes? The fruits of the Spirit is what should reign in us, but that's not always the case, is it? How many of you have heard the term church hurt? How many have you been hurt by some of the things that have happened in the church? That's not always how it goes down, is it? And so for us, this false advertising, we need to Stop with the catered appearance. We need to be aware of the ideas and the, the times that there are no fruit. There's no fruit. Are we here for the right reasons? Do we have the right heart? We sang this. I love that song, Give Us Clean Hands. You guys love that song? Give Us Clean Hands. When we come together, our presupposition is about our desires and our wants. Instead, we have to come and we have to, we have to dwell on Jesus and we have to prune our pride. We have to prune our pride when we come to church because that's a part of that false advertising. Pruning your pride is so as not to give a false impression. Interestingly, you guys know what is the opposite of, uh, sorry, of hypocrisy? What's the opposite of hypocrisy? Humility. And humility, I, I often just like to define this. Humility is not a low view of yourself. It's not having a low view of yourself, but it's having an accurate view of yourself. 
Humility is having an accurate view of yourself, not an inflated, but an accurate view, and not a lesser than. It doesn't mean that you should be depressed or dogging on yourself. It means you have an accurate view of yourself, and that is what humility is. Hypocrisy is thinking much higher of yourself than you ought. So we want to prune our pride, and I want you to see here the the two interesting things, right? And seeing in the distance that the fig tree was in leaf, so it was false advertising, False advertising, but I also want you to see something that seems almost unfair. Do you guys read this? It wasn't the season for figs. How many of you walk into your cornfields in the middle of winter and be like, where's the corn? And you would be upset. It almost seems unfair of Jesus to hold this little fig tree to having fruit out of season, doesn't it? It's, that's, that's been the major debate here, but I want to I pitch to you this idea of what Jesus is trying to show us here. The marketplace had years and years and years of tradition, yes? The temple had been inundated with flesh and fleshly traditions created by men and Pharisees for many, many, many years. Do we have a lot of traditions today that happen within Christianity that have been developed by man and not by God that have become non-negotiables within the church? Yeah. Because we're fleshly people, and so we cannot hold ourselves just because something was a tradition, just because it's something that's always been done, just because it's something that the church used to do, and maybe at one point was effective and bore fruit. That doesn't mean that now in this season it's going to bear fruit. Just because we do the same thing doesn't mean it's going to have the same result. And so for us, we need to understand that just because something has happened before or just because this is how we used to do it doesn't mean how it's how we should continue to do it. It's not in season. It's not in season. It's not bearing fruit when it's needed. That's how we've always done it is not a good argument what to do forward. The fruit is no longer in season. What used to work no longer bears fruit, even though it did at one time. Hey, it's really important. Older generations, you need to know that the fruit that came from you was good. There was a season when we could do church from this idea that, that most people hold a Judeo-Christian worldview. And we were talking in our Sunday school today that that's not the case anymore. The majority of people in the U.S. today do not still hold a Judeo-Christian worldview. So we cannot do ministry and do church the same way. We can't even do evangelism the same way. Because you start sharing the gospel and you realize that you're not sharing the gospel with somebody who, who uh, has the same kind of values and the same kind of understanding about Christian, uh, uh, even terminology. The fruit was good. To change, no, uh, to change is no reflection on the value of the saints of the past. But it is say that we have to be obedient to Christ in the now. Seasons change. Obedience, relationship, obedience is relationship and not the practice of rules is the marker. For us, we don't just follow a strict set of rules in Christianity. You guys know that rules are not what we're about. What are we about? Relationship with Jesus. Relationship with Jesus. That's our, our highest practice, obedience to his call in our lives now. That's a relationship. In fact, we see that when man were just given perfect rules by God, this is the whole Old Testament, how do we do? We fail every time when it's about rules. Every time we failed, 
even when we were favored by God, we still failed when it was about rule keeping. Now it's about relationship with God. It's obedience to him and his call in this moment. Every culture, time, and place can and should obey the king. Not every culture, time, and place can follow the same rules. The goal of the covenant was now that no one would teach one another, but instead all of us would have connection to God. That is the whole idea of the new covenant, as the Old Testament puts it. And then we also get an illustration from Jesus himself in Mark 2. says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus is bringing newness. He's a good king who's going to war, and he is, he is undoing or fulfilling, not just undoing, but he's fulfilling the Old Testament law and rules so that we might now have sonship and relationship with God. It changes everything. And so we no longer need to be about false advertising. Was Jesus being unfair to this fig? Was Jesus being unfair to this fig? It was no longer producing fruit, but it wasn't even in its season. Tradition doesn't justify inaction, nor should it prevent repentance. And obedience changes based on relationship. Practices and rules are fixed, but relationship is dependent on the direction and the speaking of God now. Mark eleven fourteen, and he said to it, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. So then they walk into the temple court. And what does Jesus see? He sees the fig tree played out in real life. He sees the fig tree played out in real life. There's all of this consumerism. Church has become a market for consumerism. Do we see this today? What do you guys think? Is there consumerism in the church? Well, let's look at a couple of things. Um, I call it the gimme, gimme religion today. Gimme, gimme religion. Seeker sensitive is a hypocrite factory. We become a people who bite and devour one another for diminishing resources. We want to get as much as we can when we can. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They may accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions so that they can get what they want and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off to myths. That sound like gimme, gimme religion? How many of us treat the church like this? You know, it was interesting. Uh, I was going to preach this. Becky uh, went to the Pentatonix uh, concert in Casper yesterday, and she said she was, she was sitting in one of the rows, and there was a gal behind her. And the gal behind her said, Man, if church was like this, I would go every Sunday. Which is interesting because if you know the pentatonics, they're not necessarily believers. They're singing Christian songs that are Christmas and about the coming Lord and uh, and some great Christmas songs that are about Jesus, but they don't live for Christ. They're not necessarily believers. But I think many of us, man, we would love to consume really entertaining things in the church, and that becomes our desire and our expectation in the church. That woman's expression of her values were consumerism, weren't they? Number one reason a few years ago why people would pick a church was because of how good the music sounded, not what they taught, not what they believed. Many people will pick a church based on how they make them feel instead of what they teach or what they believe. 
And those aren't bad things, right? Having good worship is a good thing. We want to do things um, in, in, uh, in excellence for Christ, but it cannot replace connection with him. The church or the marketplace, the place that was for the Gentiles, became a place to take advantage of other people. It's important that it mentions that there were birds or doves for sale. Um, so we, we heard about the lambs that would be uh, 255,000, but that doesn't even touch on the doves that would have been for sale. And that was for poorer Jews who were coming in to make sacrifice or atonement for their family. They would come in and there would be all these people selling doves to the poor. If you couldn't afford a lamb, you would buy a dove. And you didn't want to travel with all these animals all the way to Jerusalem. And so you would, you would come with money to buy a dove. And you can imagine there was a pretty huge markup price because as a Jew, you had to um, purchase the sacrifice for your family to fulfill the Old Testament. And so it became a place of taking advantage of others. Some of the most dangerous people in the church today are opportunists. Opportunists. Have we seen this played out as like televangelists sometimes? Where, where pastors are taking advantage of, of others or advantage of the church? But let's think about what we what have we what have we done in the church that has made this possible? Well, we've become a people that avoid conflict, have a hard time saying no, and believe that essentially everyone is good at heart. And so that makes us particularly easy to take advantage of, yes? I'll say that again. Somebody who's avoidant of conflict, who has a hard time saying no, and believes essentially that everybody is good at heart, are they really easy to take advantage of? Yeah. And that has happened over and over and again in in the church or under the the flag of the church or with the name of the church. It was intended in this passage, we see, what was the intention of the temple of the Gentile area in that temple? It was to be a prayer for the nations, a place of prayer for the nations. Instead of a place to encounter the presence of God, it it was to be a place to encounter uh, the presence of God and to protect this at all cost. And so Jesus comes in and he sees that it's no longer about God. Have you ever been into a church where you realize pretty quickly that it's no longer about Jesus, that it's no longer about God? You ever attended one of those? Have you ever seen a service or talked to Christians that's clearly? Um, how, how quickly do we protect the centrality of Christ as we sang about when it comes to our worship? How many of you, you know, I just think it's really intriguing that our society scheduled NFL football games on Sundays, knowing that it was going to cause a whole generation of men difficulty focusing on the Word of God, giving them a distraction on Sundays. You guys ever wondered that? I think the enemy had a hand in that. He knows what he's doing. Um, my dad, I, I used to grow up, and, and a lot of men would use Sundays as a personal chore day. It's my day to get caught up on things. Right? How many of us protect the centrality of Christ on our Sundays, but not just our Sundays, but our worshipful moments? Do we protect the centrality of Christ in what we do, or do we give over to our wants and our desires? We must be very careful that we do what we do is not creating consumer consumers but saints. Um, I was just thinking, I was researching a little bit about this, and how much consumerism has infiltrated Christianity. Did you, go, did you know that the Christian music industry is now uh, an annually nearly a billion-dollar industry? Nearly a billion-dollar industry has been in the past. And I think about 
that's a, a, a strong motivator for people to come in and take advantage of the dollar, right? How many musicians, I wonder, sometimes get involved, realize they can't make it in the secular realm, and so they get into Christian music because it's easier to sing and write anthems uh, for Christians because we're so easily, easily supportive of Christian language and Christian uh, terminology. I always think of the, the band Gunger. You guys remember a few years ago, uh, there was this song, You Make Beautiful Things. Remember that song? Gunger, the story behind Gunger is they were incredibly talented people, incredibly talented musicians that people got wind of and they threw into the Christian marketplace and made them super popular, but they didn't really have a lot of depth in their faith. And they were thrown into all this celebrity and all into all of this leadership. And many years later, they faced uh, some, some hardship and walked away from faith completely. How could you write an anthem like you make beautiful things and then walk away from the teachings of Scripture? Really easy. Because you were thrown into the consumerist culture of Christianity. Christian merchandise. Christian subculture and economy. Do we have our own subculture and economy today? What do you guys think? We have on our, our own Christian concerts, our own pastor celebrities and Christian celebrities. We have our own Christian politics. I think it's interesting that in order to get voted in today, you need the what they quote-unquote, and I hate that they use this word, you need the evangelical vote. We've become a political pawn to get votes. It always makes me think of uh, World War II Germany. You know what Hitler's promise was to Germany, particularly to the church in Germany? He's quoted as saying, I will make this a Christian nation. You know why he wanted that? Because he wanted the vote. He wanted the support. And you know what? The church is bought in because all he did was stand up there and say, I'm going to make this a Christian nation. Was that a wolf manipulating the sheep? You better believe it. We have to be really careful when we get promises of, from people who say, I'm going to make this a more Christian nation. We need to be very careful that we're not just using politics to get what we want instead of keeping Jesus at the center of how we view the world. Uh, do we use God to get our idols? An idol is anything that you are willing to say no to God in order to get. An idol, I'll say that again, is anything that you are willing to say no to God in order to get. I think at this time, Jesus was looking around at the temple, and there was currency exchange, and people were marking up, making lots and lots of money off of people coming and trying to worship God. We must be immensely careful that we don't come to church with the goal to gain from others. There's a whole history there that I think is important for us. Um, within Christian history, the Bible typically was written from the perspective of being a minority within a culture. There almost very rarely in Scripture do you, do you hear in the New Testament uh, from the perspective of being the majority holder of a, of a society. Why do you think that is? I just think that's interesting. When uh, Constantine took over Rome and made Rome a Christian nation, it became beneficial to attend church for your business for status, it became beneficial. I think we're coming out of a time where it was like that. It was easy to attend church because you got accolades for going to church. And the reason why churches are, are getting slimmer is because the people who were not there for the right reasons have left. Would you agree? I think that makes the church more and more 
powerful as we move on because we're seeing people here for the right reasons and not just for the benefit of what they can get out of the church. God's intention for the temple was all men's right relationship with him, prayer for the nations. We need to avoid idolatry in the church, that we would use the church to get what we want. Ideally, we should be a church centered on the gospel, gospel proclamation, gospel reminder. If you're a believer here, you need to be reminded almost weekly on the gospel that Jesus died. He's the one who paid the price for our sin, that he's the one who made us right with God by faith, that he's the one who conquered sin and death on our behalf, and that we receive that purely on faith by believing and trusting in Jesus And we need to be centered on the celebration of the gospel. This eliminates the gimme-gimme religion that can happen in churches today. And the last thing I want to leave you with is this. Jesus very clearly, this was a big issue, yes? Can you imagine in church if, uh, I don't know, somebody just kind of, maybe that was a little bit more epic than I intended. But can you imagine flipping tables, Jesus' attitude towards hypocrisy in the church? And selfishness in the church was intense, wasn't it? It was intense. See, Jesus curses. And when we look at when we look at back at the fig, we understand that, that no fruit meant that it was dead. This, of course, was a prophetic symbol against Israel because it had lost its way. The temple was no longer a means to connect with God. It was now a place to get what you wanted to be fulfilled. And we see this played out even in Revelation. The churches in Revelation, they have their lampstands removed, don't they? Um, The threat is to have their lampstands removed. We know many of them in, in the letters of the early Revelation that they did have the lampstand removed. For us individually, it means if we're not making disciples out of the love for God, are we gonna shrivel up and die, I wonder? See, I think a lot of us think if I just come to church, if I just go to Sunday, I'm good to go. But the essence here is if we're not fulfilling the Great Commission, if we're not connected to Christ, as John 15, 5 tells us, we need to be connected to the vine, then we won't bear fruit if we're not connected to the vine. If there's no fruit coming out of us, the question shouldn't be, should I do more? It should be, how do I connect to God again? Because the natural byproduct of being connected to God through Jesus is this. You make disciples out of the love that you have for God. You invest in other people. To maintain a relationship or just to get more knowledge or to maintain just attending church is not going to be good for you. That's hypocritical and that's false advertising. No fruit can come from merely existing in church. This is why when we look at pressing into Christ this next year, we're not going to focus on just maintaining what we have. If we just maintain, just push forward maintaining and have a survival mentality, we're probably going to wind up not bearing fruit and biting and devouring one another. But we were created to thrive, yes? One of Jesus' promises to us is to have the abundant life, yes? The abundant life is what he promised. So there's a sense that we are to be thriving, and to be thriving, we press further into Christ, who presses us further into making disciples and bearing fruit, to bear abundant fruit because we are intimately connected in relationship to him. Growing fruit doesn't happen without being connected to the vine of Jesus. So what? 
hey, would you confess your hypocrisy? Would you confess your hypocrisy? Um, you can say it like this. I'm a, I'm a recovering hypocrite, and you can be too. Right? I'm a recovering hypocrite, and you can be too. Avoid projecting. Avoid projecting something that you are not and holding others to an expectation that you are not willing to hold to yourself. If you just, if you just thought, um, so for some of you here, and when we listen to sermons, I've heard this sometimes, and maybe I've even had this thought. You ever listen to a sermon and you think instantly you have that name in your head? Oh, so-and-so should have heard this. I'm just going to leave that there because that's probably one of those things where you need to avoid projecting and you need to start thinking, what is God saying to me? Not as, what does he, what does that person need? You know, not instead of elbowing your partner, maybe God is telling you that you need to do some business with him. Would you check your heart? Motives matter, brothers and sisters. Why we do church really matters. And we're going to see that played out over and over and over in the future, I think, as the church becomes stronger but smaller. Because no longer is it beneficial. You need to check your heart because it's going to be mean paying a cost to be a believer, to come to church. It means paying a cost to be here because it's worth it to worship Jesus with fellow believers. Small groups, how have you been hypocritical in the past? How about now? And how do I check my motives are Christ-centered? Would you ask those questions of yourselves? Um, guys, I'm going to have... Uh, Actually, today, oh, we got uh, one elder, one or two elders <laughs> that are here today. Um, we're going to go into a time of giving and response. So would you just bow your heads, close your eyes, I'll have our elders come forward. But now's a great time to check your heart. Now's a great time to see why it is that you come to church. Why do you do what you do? Are you here because of Jesus? Are you here because of what he's accomplished for you on that cross? Or are you here because it's just convenient or it's appeasing somebody else in your life because you get to get something? That's why you're here. I'll have our elders go ahead and start handing out the plates. A great way to tune the heart to be here for the right reasons is to sacrifice the idol of our wealth to him. It's a way that God train, helps us train our hearts not to value money more than him. And so if you're here, I encourage you to be a giver, to train your heart, to train your heart how to make God more important than what could be an idol of money. prayer. Maybe you need to confess with one another. Maybe there's somebody here you don't need to talk to me. Maybe there's somebody here in the auditorium you need to talk to and confess, hey, and I'm a, I'm a hypocrite and I'm sorry. Maybe there's somebody you need to confess that to today. Feel free to do that. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would work in our hearts. Lord, we know that our hearts are deceitful above all else and that we could be here for the wrong reasons and not even be fully aware of that about ourselves. God, we pray, Holy Spirit, would you give us wisdom and discernment? Would you help us? Would you teach us more about ourselves? And God, we pray that you would help us with the right motives. God, that we might come to rejoice and enjoy your presence. 
above all else. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.